Section 104 of Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Iceland, Greenland, and the Search for the Poles. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Avai in September 2019. The World's Story, Volume 8 norway sweden denmark iceland greenland and the search for the poles edited by eva march tappan section one hundred four the discovery of the north pole nineteen o nine by admiral robert e peary the discovery of the north pole is much more than a mere matter of sentiment and goes far beyond the solving of a tantalizing academic problem its scientific results are of the utmost importance. Chief among them is the knowledge which it has given us of the American polar basin and the continental shelf. Scientists have discovered that neither continents nor islands rise abruptly from the depths of the ocean. There is around them a somewhat leveled submarine platform where the water is comparatively shallow. This platform has received the name of the continental shelf how far it extended beyond the northernmost land in the american arctic no one could say a shelf of great extent would indicate according to the scientists the probable existence of a group of islands or possibly a continent far within the arctic circle deep water on the other hand would mean an unbroken polar sea this important question was decisively settled by peary Fifty miles north of Cape Columbia, he took a sounding that revealed a depth of 660 feet. At about 40 miles farther north, the depth had increased to 1,950 feet. Within five miles of the pole, all his wire, 9,000 feet, was sent down in a vain attempt to reach the bottom. The northern apex of the earth, therefore, is now known to be an ocean of vast depth. Besides collecting much valuable data of which geographical students have long been in need, Peary brought Arctic travel to a science, introducing methods that have been of profound value to all recent explorers. He carried Arctic sledging to its present proficiency, perfected every detail of equipment, and devised the most efficient machine that has ever invaded the mysterious polar regions. Much scientific work in the far north remains to be done, and all future explorers must lie under great obligations to this man who has led the way, who has shown how to plan and organize and equip, how to provide for every contingency, and how to make the delays, difficulties, and disappointments all contribute to a final success. The Editor I turned to the problem before me. This was what I had worked for during twenty-two years, for which I had lived the simple life, for which I had conserved all my energy on the upward trip, for which I had trained myself as for a race, crushing down every worry about non-success. Now, in spite of my years, I felt in trim, fit for the demands of the coming days, and eager to be on the trail. As for my party, my equipment and my supplies i was in shape beyond my most sanguine dreams of earlier years 
my party might be regarded as an ideal which had now come to realization as loyal and responsive to my will as the fingers of my right hand four of them carried the technique of dogs sledges ice and cold as their heritage two of them henson and uta were my companions to my father's north three years before two others Egingwa and siglu were in clark's division which had such a narrow escape at that time and now were willing to go anywhere in my immediate party but were not willing to risk themselves again in any supporting party the fifth was a young man who had never served before in my expeditions but who was if possible even more willing and eager than the others for the princely gifts a boat a rifle a shotgun ammunition knives etc which i had promised to each of them who reached the pole with me for he knew that these riches would enable him to wrest from a stubborn father the girl whose image filled his hot young heart all had blind confidence so long as i was with them and gave no thought for the morrow sure that whatever happened i should somehow get them back to land i recognized that all the impetus of the party centered in me and that whatever pace i set it would make good if i played out it would stop like a car with a punctured tire i had no fault to find with these conditions my dogs were the very best the pick of one hundred and thirty-three with which we had left columbia almost all were powerful males hard as nails in good flesh but without a superfluous ounce without a suspicion of fat anywhere and what was better yet they were all in good spirits my sledges now that the repairs were completed were in good condition my supplies were ample for forty days and with the reserve represented by the dogs themselves could be made to last fifty pacing back and forth in the lee of the pressure ridge where our igloos were built while my men got their loads ready for the next marches i settled on my programme i decided that i should strain every nerve to make five marches of twenty-five miles each crowding these marches in such a way as to bring us to the end of the fifth long enough before noon to permit the immediate taking of an observation for latitude weather and open water permitting i believed i could do this if my proposed distances were cut down by any chance i had two means in reserve for making up the deficit first to make the last march a forced one stopping to make tea and rest the dogs but not to sleep second at the end of the fifth march to make a forced march with a light sledge a double team of dogs and one or two of the party leaving the rest in camp underlying all these calculations was a recognition of the ever-present possibility of open leads and impassable water and the knowledge that a twenty-four hours gale would knock all my plans into a cocked hat and even put us in imminent peril at a little after midnight of april first after a few hours of sound sleep i hit the trail leaving the others to break up camp and follow as i climbed the pressure ridge back of our igloos i took up another hole in my belt the third since i started every man and dog of us was lean and flat-bellied as a board 
and as hard. It was a fine morning. The wind of the last two days had subsided, and the going was the best and most equable of any I had had yet. The flows were large and old, hard and clear, and were surrounded by pressure ridges, some of which were almost stupendous. The biggest of them, however, were easily negotiated, either through some gap or up some huge drifts. I set a good pace for about ten hours. Twenty-five miles took us well beyond the eighty-eighth parallel. While we were building our igloos, a long lead formed to the east and southeast of us at a distance of a few miles. A few hours' sleep and we were on the trail again. The weather was fine, and the going like that of the previous day, except at the beginning, when pickaxes were required. This, and a brief stop at another lead, cut down our distance. But we had made twenty miles in ten hours, and were halfway to the eighty-ninth parallel. The ice was grinding audibly in every direction, but no motion was visible. Evidently it was settling back into equilibrium, and probably sagging northward with its release from the wind pressure. Again a few hours' sleep, and we hit the trail before midnight. The weather and going were even better than before. The surface, except as interrupted by infrequent ridges, was as level as the glacial fringe from Hecla to Columbia, and harder. We marched something over ten hours, the dogs being often on the trot, and made twenty miles. Near the end of the march, we rushed across a lead one hundred yards wide, which buckled under our sledges, and finally broke, as the last sledge left it. We stopped in sight of the eighty-ninth parallel, in a temperature of forty degrees below. Again a scant sleep, and we were on our way once more, and across the eighty-ninth parallel. This march duplicated the previous one as to weather and going. The last few hours it was on young ice, occasionally the dogs were galloping, and we made twenty-five miles or more. The air, the sky, and the bitter wind, burning the face till it crackled, reminded me of the great interior ice-cap of Greenland. Even the natives complained of the bitter air. It was as keen as frozen steel. A little longer sleep than the previous ones had to be taken here, as we were all in need of it. Then on again. Up to this time, with each successive march, my fear of an impassable lead had increased. At every inequality of the ice I found myself hurrying breathlessly forward, fearing that it marked a lead, and when I arrived at the summit I would catch my breath with relief, only to find myself hurrying on in the same way as the next one. But on this march, by some strange shift of feeling, this fear fell from me completely. The weather was thick, but it gave me no uneasiness, as before turning in I had taken an observation which indicated our position as 89.25. A dense lifeless pall hung overhead. The horizon was black and the ice beneath was a ghastly, chalky white, with no relief, a striking contrast to the glimmering, sunlit ice-fields over which we had been travelling for the previous four days. The going was even better, 
and there was scarcely any snow on the hard granular last summer's surface of the old floes dotted with the sapphire ice of the previous summer's lakes a rise in temperature to fifteen degrees below zero reduced the friction of the sledges and gave the dogs the appearance of having caught the spirits of the party the more sprightly ones as they went along with tightly curled tails frequently tossed their heads with short sharp barks and yelps in twelve hours we made thirty miles there was no sign of a lead in this march i have now made my five marches and it was in time for a hasty noon observation through a temporary break in the clouds which indicated our position as eighty nine point five seven i quote an entry from my journal some hours later the pole at last the prize of three centuries my dream and goal for twenty years mine at last i cannot bring myself to realize it it all seems so simple and commonplace as bartlett said when turning back when speaking of his being in this exclusive regions which no mortal had ever penetrated before it is just like every day the thirty hours at the pole were spent in taking observations in going some ten miles beyond our camp and some eight miles to the right of it in taking photographs planting my flags depositing my records studying the horizon with my telescope for possible land and searching for a practicable place to make a sounding ten hours after our arrival the clouds cleared before a light breeze from our left and from that time until our departure in the afternoon of april seven the weather was cloudless and flawless the minimum temperature during the thirty hours was thirty three degrees below zero the maximum eleven degrees below we had reached the goal but the return was still before us it was essential that we reach the land before the next spring tides and we must strain every nerve to do this i had a brief talk with my men from now on it was to be big travel little sleep and a hustle every minute we would try i told them to double march on the return that is to start and cover one of our northward marches make tea and eat our luncheon in the igloos then cover another march eat and sleep a few hours and repeat this daily as a matter of fact we nearly did this covering regularly on our homeward journey five outward marches in three return marches just as long as we could hold the trail we could double our speed and we need waste no time in building new igloos every day that we gained on the return lessened the chances of a gale destroying the trail just above the eighty-seventh parallel was a region some fifty miles wide which caused me considerable uneasiness twelve hours of strong easterly westerly or southerly wind would make this region an open sea in the afternoon of the seventh we started on our return having double-fed the dogs repaired the sledges for the last time and discarded all our spare clothing to lighten the loads five miles from the pole a narrow crack filled with recent ice through which we were able to work a hole with a pickaxe enabled me to make a sounding all my wire fifteen hundred fathoms was sent down but there was no bottom 
in pulling up the wire parted a few fathoms from the surface and lead and wire went to the bottom three marches brought us back to the igloos where the captain turned back the last march was in the wild sweep of a northerly gale with drifting snow and the ice rocking under us as we dashed over it south of where marvin had turned back we came to where his party had built several igloos while delayed by open leads still farther south we found where the captain had been held up by an open lead and obliged to camp fortunately the movement of these leads was simply open and shut and there had been no lateral motion to fault the trail seriously while the captain marvin and as i found out later bore up had been delayed by open leads we seemed to bear a potent charm and at no single lead were we delayed more than a couple of hours sometimes the ice was fast and firm enough to carry us across sometimes a short detour sometimes a brief halt for the lead to close sometimes an improvised ferry on an ice cake enabled us to keep the trail without difficulty down to the tenth outward march there the trail disappeared completely and the entire region was unrecognizable where on the outward journey had been narrow cracks there were now broad leads one of them over five miles in width caught over with young ice here again fortune favored us and no pronounced movement of the ice having taken place since the captain passed we had his trail to follow we picked up the old trail again north of the seventh igloos followed it beyond the fifth and at the big lead lost it finally from here we followed the captain's trail and on april twenty third our sledges passed up the vertical edge of the glacier fringe a little west of cape columbia when the last sledge came up i thought my eskimos had gone crazy they yelled and called and danced themselves helpless as utah sat down on his sledge he remarked in eskimo the devil is asleep or having trouble with his wife or we never should have come back so easily a few hours later we arrived at crane city under the bluffs of cape columbia and after putting four pounds of pemmican into each of the faithful dogs to keep them quiet we had at last our chance to sleep never shall i forget that sleep at cape columbia it was sleep sleep then turn over and sleep again with never a thought of the morrow or of impassable black leads cold water to a parched throat is nothing compared with sleep to a fatigue-numbed brain and body two days we spent here in sleeping and drying our clothes then for the ship our dogs like ourselves had not been hungry when we arrived but simply lifeless with fatigue they were different animals now and the better ones among them stepped out with tightly curled tails and uplifted heads and their iron legs treading the snow with piston-like regularity we reached hecla in one march and the roosevelt in another when we got to the roosevelt i was staggered by the news of the fatal mishap to marvin he had been either less cautious or less fortunate than the rest of us and his death emphasized the risk to which we had all been subjected for there was not one of us but had been in the leads at some time during the journey the big lead cheated of its prey three years before 
had at last gained its human victim. The rest can be quickly told. Macmillan and Borup had started for the Greenland coast to deposit caches for me. As soon as I arrived, an Eskimo courier from me overtook them with instructions that the caches were no longer needed, and that they were to concentrate their energies on tidal observations and soundings, at Cape Morris K. Jessup and north from there. These instructions were carried out, and after their return in the latter part of May, Macmillan made some further tidal observations at other points. The supplies remaining at the various caches were brought in, and on July 18th the Roosevelt left her winter quarters and was driven out into the channel pack off Cape Union. She fought her way south in the centre of the channel, and passed Cape Sabine on August 8th, or thirty-nine days earlier than in 1908, and thirty-two days earlier than the British expedition in 1876. We picked up Whitney and my party, and the stores at Eta. We killed seventy-odd walrus for my Eskimos, whom I landed at their homes. We met the genie of Saunders Island and took over her coal, and cleared from Cape York on August 26th, one month earlier than in 1906. On September 5 we arrived at Indian Harbour, whence the message, Stars and Stripes Nailed to North Pole, was sent vibrating southward through the crisp Labrador air. The culmination of long experience, a thorough knowledge of the conditions of the problem, gained in the last expedition, together with a new type of sledge which reduced the work of both dogs and driver, and a new type of camp cooker which added to the comfort and increased the hours of sleep of the members of the party, combined to make the present expedition an agreeable improvement upon the last in respect to the rapidity and effectiveness of its work, and the lessened discomfort and strain upon the members of the party. Peary here speaks in praise of the members of the party, and of the special work of each. As for my faithful Eskimos, I have left them with ample supplies of dark, rich walrus meat and blubber for their winter, with coffee, sugar, biscuits, guns, rifles, ammunition, knives, hatchets, traps, etc., and for the splendid four who stood beside me at the pole, a boat and tent each to requite them for their energy and the hardship and toil they underwent to help their friend Peary to the North Pole. But all of this, the dearly bought years of experience, the magnificent strength of the Roosevelt, the splendid energy and enthusiasm of my party, the loyal faithfulness of my Eskimos, would have gone for naught but for the sinews of war furnished so loyally by the members and friends of the Peary Arctic Club. Footnote. The Peary Arctic Club is the organization which made Peary's attainment of the pole possible. Its president is General Thomas H. Hubbard, Vice President Zenas Crane, Secretary and Treasurer Herbert L. Bridgman. End footnote. And it is no detraction from the living to say that to no single individual has the final result been more signally due than to my friend, the late Morris K. Jessup the first president of the club. Their assistance has enabled me to tell the last of the great earth stories, the story the world has been waiting to hear for three hundred years. 
the story of the discovery of the north pole end of section 104